Maybe this is the future of Tokyo, an early post-war attempt with Tokyo Tower to reach for the sky, to provide the infrastructure for TV, the technological innovation of its day. A strange Star Trek-like temple from 50 years ago belonging to a religious organization, only double that. It includes a reservoir with 400 tons of drinking water in the event of an unspecified apocalypse and the monotonous towers that have sprouted in the last 20 years and continue to sprout, the spawn of an unholy alliance between Japanese developers and international architects, providing a vertical, modern, urban village in which well-heeled professionals can work, live and recreate. Welcome to Historicity, where we turn back time to see how cities got to be the way they are. I'm Angus Lockyer. I've been teaching and writing history for over 20 years. But when I want to think about how the past became the present and where we might go next, I head outside, walk the streets and pick apart the layers. And I'm Jelena Sofronievich. I'm fascinated by the way that history and politics and culture intersect. How our imperial pasts have left their trace on our material present, not least in the streets. In this walk, we're exploring three areas in the west of Tokyo, which mushroomed in the post-war period, providing a vision of what this city, and maybe cities worldwide, might become. All three became famous entertainment districts. All three have also, therefore, been subject to the attention of both the authorities and the developers. As ever, a couple of notes before we get underway. We've designed these walks to follow on foot, but we know that you might not be on the streets. You can download maps and transcripts from the episode notes. If you're on the street, you'll find that we're quite fast walkers. But of course, you can listen to this at your own pace. Just change the speed on your podcast app to suit yourself. In this episode, we'll see how Rapongi, just two kilometres south of the palace, has been transformed by property developers in the last 40 years. They've bought up lots and they've wiped the slate clean to provide offices, housing and recreation suitable for well-heeled, discriminating professionals and creatives. We'll start at the southeast corner of Rapongi Hills, in front of the Staya bookstore, halfway between Azabujuban and Rapongi stations. We'll meet you there. So here we are, we're standing in front of the Staya bookstore in Rapongi Hills. In front of us, we've got a busy road. It was a ring road that was actually planned after the 1923 earthquake. It was upgraded for the 1964 Olympics, but it's never been completed. It doesn't run the whole way around Tokyo. Across the road in the distance, we can see the little red tip of Tokyo Tower reaching for the sky, as well as much larger towers, one of them still under construction. That's where we're going to end this episode. Staya, behind us now, is an interesting story in and of itself. It got started in the 1980s in Osaka. It was a combination of CD and movie rental, book selling and a cafe. And it remains that more or less today. Its name, in fact, came from a geisha house which was run by the grandfather of the founder. One of his staff pointed out that it was also the name of a famous early modern publisher responsible for some of the most renowned woodblock prints, and maybe that was a better genealogy to pretend. Staya, though, is very much a product of the 1980s, a place to slow down in a busy city, to build your cultural capital and to craft a lifestyle. The books on sale focus very much on art, photography, architecture, their destinations to while away a day. And the bookstore is a fitting introduction to Rapongi Hills, We started our walks around Tokyo by making our way into what was once Edo Castle and is now a garden. Rapongi Hills is very different, but in some ways it is the same, a kind of contemporary castle, if you like. Again, there's no easy way into the belly of this particular beast, and it's forbidding. The soaring grey towers dominate the people on the streets. So we're going to head into this castle now. We're heading up this slope, under a blue sign saying Centre Loop, to the pedestrian crossing we can see in the distance, crossing over to the right of the road. 
So we've crossed the road. We've got the huge, fat, grey tower soaring up into the sky ahead of us. It's surrounded on our left by light ochre walls. This very much does look like a castle. But we're going to branch right here, past an open-air arena, into the garden we can see ahead. It's a good place to set the context for what's happened in Rapongi in the last 20 years. So we've made our way past that arena into this small garden. We're sitting on a stone bench. We've got a pond, some cherry trees are beginning to bloom. But then on our right, we've got a wall of glass with anime characters, including Draimon, who's an old favorite of mine. It's a good place to set the scene for Rapongi. The town is probably called Rapongi. It means six trees. Not because of trees, in fact, but because there were six lords who lived nearby back in the day. Each of them had the character for tree in their name. Then, in the late 19th century, much of this area around us is taken over by the Imperial Japanese Armed Forces. Some of them were involved in an attempt to overthrow the state in 1936. That didn't work. And ten years later, Japan, of course, is defeated in the war. The Americans come to town, and many of them set up here. The U.S. military still maintains a heliport 200 meters northwest of us right now. It also has the headquarter of the Stars and Stripes, where the U.S. forces get their news. By the 60s, then, with the foreign vibe that was congregating hereabouts, Rapongi is becoming a playpen for celebrities, for models and more. We'll hear much more about this in a minute. But we're here in Rapongi Hills, and of course the buildings we see around us are recent. This particular site was one of two suburban villas owned by the Mori family, a different family, even though the name sounds the same. They go way back, all the way back to the 12th century, and their home base is in the far west of the main island. It's actually where I lived when I first came to Japan, and it's saturated with history because they are very proud of it. That family was opposed to the Tokugawa when they are beginning to found their state in 1600, and indeed that domain takes the lead in overthrowing them in the 1860s. Many of its most famous sons then take leading roles in making the modern Japanese state. That's why they're so proud. This estate, though, passes out of their lord's hands. Initially, it's taken over by a lawyer and a girl's school, interestingly enough. Then, before the war, Japan's first beauty salon and school sets up shop here. It's called Hollywood. It's still over to our left today. After the war, there's a whiskey factory and then an important private TV station. TV gets going in 1953. On our right where the anime characters are plastering this huge glass wall, is now their main base. They moved here too. But still, in the 70s and 80s, most of this area is densely populated, still with wooden houses. And so, in 1990, it's designated for redevelopment. To find out why we see it as it is today, we're going to climb up into this castle now. So we're going to walk past the pond now. We're leaving the light ochre wall on our left. We're going to the end of the garden along the wall, and then we're going to start climbing past a waterfall and then up a lot of stairs. At the top, we'll find a plaza with a spider standing over us. In a city like Tokyo, we need a place to escape the overwhelming streets and the unrelenting change. Artist Nishino Sohei has created dioramas of Tokyo and other cities, piecing together thousands of photographs to create a personal map of the city. Here he explains how he got his start. Uh, when I was a university student, I did walk on the street every day. Yeah, but but student at the time, and I, I didn't like to see the human's eyes. I was not good at uh, communicating with uh, even my, my, my family and my friend. I was like that person. <laughs> and so that's why I, I always visited to high viewpoint, the place where nobody comes because I really wanted to be alone. When I look, look down to the city, I felt I see me. 
and at the time I took picture um, many place of high viewpoint and then when I put 10 images from different point of high viewpoint on the table um, I saw this is a really oh, my map Tokyo is really henka ga oi it changes a lot I did create the map of Tokyo 2004 like at the first time and again in 2014 um, thinking to create again in like next year 2024 to see differences like uh, in the future Tokyo to mono machi ga kawatte iku sugata o miru project demo aru the city changes, we change, so the map has to change. Yeah, that's great. Maybe a place like Rapongi Hills is not just a fortress, but a refuge. We've made our way up all those stairs. We've broken through the walls of this contemporary grey castle with its forbidding keep above us now. We can hear water here too. It's cascading down some perspex panels, unlike the babbling waterfall we had down below. In the distance, we can still see Tokyo Tower, and ahead of us, a wonderful sculpture of a spider with her eggs hanging down in the sack over our heads. This is by Louise Bourgeois. But the main story is the tower in front of us and the complex at the heart of which it sits. Rapongi Hills is the creation of the Mori Building Company. This was founded in 1955 by a professor of economics who quit his academic position four years later at 55 as the company began to make money. He started with numbered office buildings in Shimbashi in Toranomon in the 1960s. Then he built La Forêt in 1978, which we saw on our previous episode in Shibuya. Come the 1980s, though, he's changing his game. Just down the street, Ark Hills, in 1986, is his first integrated development. What that means is you've got offices, you've got residences, you've got a hotel, you've got places to eat. You've also got a concert hall in that one. By the end of that decade, in the early 1990s, he's the richest man in the world, with a fortune double the size of that Bill Gates. Property trumps tech perhaps. He dies in 1993. By then, this is already under development. This is the vision of his son, Minoru. It costs 4 billion US dollars. It covers 27 acres. With the residences and the amenities we've already seen walking up the slope into it, the luxury stores we see everywhere in Tokyo. Tokyo outposts of French fine dining. Its centerpiece is the fat grey thing we have in front of us. This is the 54-storey Mori Tower. It was the second tallest occupied tower when it was built. Now it's the eighth. Mori has built higher since, we'll see in this episode. There's shopping and eating at the bottom. There are offices in the middle, including Goldman Sachs, the Vampire Squid, and Pokemon. They all can find a home here. And there's a viewing tower and museums up top, and the museum is a good one. But what he's doing here is creating a particular kind of space. In the initial branding, it was called an art-elegant city, art and intelligence, a hopeless compound. He's targeting the internationally-minded young professional who likes to imagine themselves, perhaps, as a thought leader and who appreciates the trappings of contemporary art. From the beginning, it's been successful but it's not universally loved. Here's British sociologist Adrian Favell. Rapongi Hills was Neo-Tokyo incarnate, the very vision of a city within a city. But the real story about Rapongi Hills was what lay below all those happy flowers. The complex covered 12 hectares of old Tokyo. It was a sleazy, Yakuza-infested, yet working-class and sentimentally remembered neighbourhood of Rapongi that had taken the persistent Mr. Mori 17 years to obtain as he bought out every single small lot owner in the area. The Tokyo Metropolitan Government, led by the populist Ishihara Shintaro from 1999 to 2012, was delighted. For Tokyo's black crow and rat-baiting governor, for these, read African immigrants and mafia, 
It was the perfect monumental project with which to clean up and start again. And it satisfied the lust of global capital for a massive blank slate on which to build an architect's dream of Tokyo. For the sleek silver monolith would also be thoroughly securitised from ordinary folk, sliced through by freeways, monitored on every corner, kept clear of homeless and undesirables, and armed with electronic doors and escalators that could be bolted at the flick of a switch. A year after the opening of the tower in 2003, tragedy struck when the sensors of the building backfired and a child was crushed to death in an automatic glass door. Not the best start for the building, but at least it hasn't happened since. We'll see a few traces of the older Rapongi as we wander through the rest of this neighbourhood, but we'll also see how the Mori Company has continued to transform this area of Tokyo, how it's established a template for other developers to do more or less the same thing, and so how it has paved the way for the transformation of other areas of Tokyo too, including the old working-class districts which we've explored in our walk around the commoner's city. But we're going to turn our back on Mr Mori for a while. We're walking past all the walls of water, leaving them on our right, and then heading down an escalator. The sign says Rapongi Crossing 400 metres. So we've made our way to the bottom of that escalator. Immediately you can hear we're back in the noisy city. We've got a busy road in front of us. We've got a freeway stacked on top of that road. And we've seen that contrast throughout our walks in Tokyo. Quiet little gardens, roaring traffic. We're following the sign to Subway Rapongi Station, just 140 meters ahead. But before we get to the station, we're going to cross this busy road at the first pedestrian crossing. We've made our way across the pedestrian crossing just by one of the entrances to the station. And we're on the other side of the street looking at a huge construction site which we can hear. We're turning right here and stopping at the corner. So we're pausing briefly on this corner in front of a Mizuho bank. Looking back over the busy road with the freeway overhead, we can see a pink awning. This is Armand and it's on Rapongi Crossing, the main intersection in this neighborhood. In the old days, Armand was where you would meet before you spent a night on the town. In the 80s, it was disco. In the 90s, as the economy went south, it was karaoke and cabaret, a little less pricey. You would tumble out of the station here and hope to avoid the touts on the streets trying to entice you into clubs. Iranians in the 90s, Nigerians in the noughties who were also becoming owners of clubs. If you had the misfortune of going into one of these clubs, you would spend a lot of money in the company of glamorous models, many of them not Japanese. First world, up to 2,000 East European models since, with Chinese and Southeast Asian backstage staff preparing the food. The first world and the third world still play out in places like this. There's still a bit of that kind of activity here. We'll see that in a minute. But first, we're going to turn left up this small side street and stop at the corner to look at what's under construction. So we've come to the end of this small street now. And on the other side, we can see some of the clubs that survive. Fusion, Babel, they mean Tower of Babel, and an Irish pub but the construction to our left is the main story here. This used to be the base of TSK. A Korean-born mobster made a lot of money on the Japan-South Korea ferry route in the early post-war period. 
He got into gang life. He dominated the Ginza, which we saw in our walk around the imperial city. He did that in the early 60s. And then here, in 1973, he opened the Celebrity Choice Club, CCC. It was the headquarters of the gang. It had nightclubs, many of them. It had apartments. It had a boxing gym, a spa, a rooftop garden, and a tennis court. He finally died in 2022, but already his empire had fallen apart. The building was demolished in 2008, and after all kinds of legal shenanigans, it's now being replaced by a 22-story office tower. Recently, in Rapongi, nightlife has been replaced by work during the day. We're turning right now in front of the clubs, Fusion, Vabel, the Irish pub, and pausing on the next corner. So we've reached the next corner in front of a busy road, but we're looking right at a cream-colored building with a massive set of billboards. They tell us that this is one of the few places in Rapongi which is still playing the old game. We've got Seventh Heaven, a strip club. We've got Bad Girls, two Ds in that one. And then on one of the top floors, we've got Jokyo Girls. In Japanese, normally this is actually read Hogen Joshi. This is a bar where girls will speak in regional dialects for the lost boys in the big city who are pining for a taste of home. Turning around from that building, on the other side of the street, we see another huge complex. This is Tokyo Midtown. Originally, this is another Mori residence. That lord from the southwest of Japan had two outside the center of the city. Then, in the modern period, this becomes an imperial Japanese army base. After the war, it gets turned into US Army officer housing. And then when the Americans finally leave, it's the headquarters of the Japan Defense Agency through the end of the 20th century. Following the model that Mori has established, the other Mori, it's redeveloped, this time by Mitsui Fudosan. We've met them before in Nihonbashi, their bastion. This, Tokyo Midtown, opened in 2007 with a taller tower than that in Rapongi Hills, their competitors, after all. As we'll see in the rest of this episode, Mori has hit back with even taller things. Unlike the Mori Art Museum, though, which specializes in contemporary art exhibitions for bright young things, here we've got the venerable Suntory Art Museum. It was elsewhere before this, and it specializes in exhibitions of older, more established art. But we're not going to cross over to Tokyo Midtown. We're turning left on this main street now, and then left again at the next corner. It's a smaller side street which goes diagonally away from us and will lead you down a residential neighborhood. So we've come to the end of that diagonal residential street and we're now turning left for a short distance up a small slope. Ahead of us, we'll soon see another massive art museum. So we're at the top of that small slope on the other side of the street now. On our left, we've got the National Graduate Institute for Policy Studies. The government presence here continues. But the main event here is on our right, a huge curved frontage, which is the National Art Center. This too was built in 2007. It's the third corner of what's now called the Rapongi Art Triangle. Formerly, the University of Tokyo had an institute here. But this building is by a reformed metabolist, Kisho Kurokawa. In the 60s, he believed in the organic city, modular structures. This is obviously not that. Instead, it's something we see time and again in Tokyo, an empty museum built to stage temporary exhibitions. At the moment, they've got yet another show from the Louvre. European art retains its pull for the well-to-do Japanese. We're going to turn our back on both of these now. We're walking straight back down towards Tokyo Midtown, crossing the street and then left into a park. 
Thanks to its newish museums, Rupongi is a centre for contemporary art. Rupongi Crossing, a recent biennial show at the Mori Art Museum, included a work by Sidecore, which features videos of skateboarders on top of the tower. Here's Matsushita Toru, a member of the collective, explaining how spaces like these provide space to make and display art. In the beginning of the career, we are more edgy. <laughs> I was saying like, oh, you, you should not, never work with government or developers, you know. We are doing all the projects illegally in the beginning. And the, our first project was making like gallery and making painting underground illegally. <laughs> we sneaking there and, and now we go there with the permission. The situation really changes like, which company can work with us, you know. Organizations don't have like one face, you know. Each people has like a different idea. So. Um, Mori Museum is pretty tough <laughs> to work with. So for the show, in the video, there is a scene, a skater skating on the top of the, uh, like rooftop of the building. To work with uh, Mori Museum, it has our demand to do the shooting in the rooftop or inside of the museum. It's never done, right? Because we wanted to make the skaters be happy. When skaters do the skating in the place nobody ever done, it's called like making. To do a show in the Mori, it was our negotiation. They asked to do the skating, but they said, you know, no, it's impossible. So we discussed with curator how we make it possible. And also skating become the part of the Olympic game. <laughs> You know, they're professionals, so you should welcome them to the skating, and it's an honor. <laughs> and I made it happen. So it's a negotiation. We are kind of spoiled by the big Mori company, but in the other hand, at least we kind of made a scratch. <laughs> and it's kind of recorded the skater's history, right? These guys did the skating in the rooftop of the Mori building. <laughs> Do you think, with respect to the work itself, that its meaning changes when it's displayed on a high level as opposed to the level that it's recorded, that it's produced at on the streets? If you show the graffiti on the canvas and put it in a museum, it kind of loses value of the graffiti. I think that's true, but everything is not the same. Some artists really fit graffiti expression to canvas. Art really fit in the museum and also fit in the you know like market, and still doesn't lose the meaning, right? Uh, most boring thing is stacking to one form. I told you about the video piece, but we are also showing the sculpture piece, chandelier made of the construction lights. All the construction lights are created by one company named Sendai Meiban. The company is formed in Tohoku. They used to be a very small company before the earthquake, but after the earthquake, construction business became very big. Sendai Meiban is taking all over the Japan. Um, all the lights, the signal is coming from Fukushima, where the nuclear accident was. They have a clock system, an automatic clock system inside, kind of blinks in the same time. So I think that's very interesting because, you know, we have like road connected to Tokyo to everywhere, but all the resource never go out from Tokyo, but only all the resources in the countryside only go to Tokyo. It's one way, you know. <laughs> so if you see the blinks of the light, construction lights in Tokyo, like synchronizing. It's like connecting the landscape, countryside and Tokyo. As we saw in Shibuya in our previous episode, corporate development can also provide a place for art to be made and seen. So we've made our way down into this park with the bulk of Tokyo Midtown over on our right. 
we've passed some more fountains. A landscape does need water. And we've also passed workmen pruning the cherry trees which are now blooming. And people, of course, picking up the branches which are free to take home to make their living rooms come alive. And we're paused next to a low concrete structure with two triangular roofs. This is 2121 design site. The park is called Hinokicho Park. Hinoki is cypress and there were many cypress trees around here. And this is the site of a second Mori garden, the feudal lord from the southwest of Japan who was very antipathetic to the Tokugawa. I rather like that the two present-day corporate rivals both have to draw on the same early modern tradition. Similarly, they're both trying to erase what happened between the time that the Lord left and they arrived. The problematic modern history of Rapongi when it was occupied by the military, first Japanese, then Americans, and then the Japan Defense Agency. Tokyo Midtown, again, appeals to a slightly more discriminating crowd than Rapongi Hills, where we started this walk. 2121 Design Site is part of this. This was established back in 2007 by two icons of the contemporary design scene in Japan. Ando Tarao, originally from Osaka, who we've already met as the designer of Omote Sando Hills in the previous episode of this walk. The building is constructed out of his characteristic smooth concrete, which does wonders for the exhibits here and in many other museums throughout Japan. His collaborator was Miyake Issei, the great late 20th century clothing designer. You can find a whole series of his shops further up the hill from Omote Sando Hills, in maybe the most exclusive shopping district in Tokyo. Miyake is most famous for his Pleats Please collection, concertina-like fabric, and the roof on this building, 2121 Design Site, is a kind of pleat. He imagined this as a folded steel piece of cloth. And the gallery itself is an epicenter of Japan's thriving design culture. In the first half of this episode, we've traced the transformation of Roppongi from a playpen for glitterati gangsters and foreigners, serviced by a transnational proletariat, to a high-rise comfort zone for well-heeled professionals. Next, we'll see how developments like Roppongi Hills and Tokyo Midtown are becoming the norm in this area of Tokyo more generally. But first, we'll take a break. Welcome back. In the first half of this episode, we walked through the heart of Rapongi, once a playground, but now a place where art museums trace a triangle in which discriminating professionals can work, live and play. Now we'll see how the Mori Building Company and his corporate rivals are extending the same model of integrated developments, vertical villages, to Azabu, just to our east. So we'll leave the park now. We've got 2121 design site on our left. On our right, we've got a small pop-up bar, and we're going to continue down the slope of the park, meeting at the corner. So we've made our way to a corner of the park now, past a huge, grey, monstrous steel sculpture. And we're standing on the road that runs down next to the park. You can hear the kids in the nursery school right in front of us. There's also an Eton House International Preschool sign. We're turning right now, down the slope, past Eton House, which will take us to a road. We'll turn right there and up the slope on the other side. It's a hilly bit of Tokyo. Despite all the recent building, we need to remember that Neo-Tokyo, in the west side of the city, is only half a century old. Here's sociologist Yoshimi Shunya to remind us that it was the Tokyo Olympics in 1964, whose stadia we saw in Shibuya, that was the turning point. Tokyo Olympics game in 1964 was very important. 
national government, local government, and every the industry want to change this city from slow city to fast city and low city to high city. All of these things, things occurred. Japan constructed not only Shinkansen but also subway system, Tokyo Expressway. The expressway covered so many rivers and so many canals. And at the same time, they widened the road because they wanted to change this city to the city for automobiles. So they abolished the tram line because before that, streetcar system was so important for this city. And then after that, more and more skyscrapers, and especially Mori building today. So it is a very, very clear kind of the discontinuity because Roppongi had been the city and district of military, and it changed to district of the business. In this big change, the center of Tokyo moved from northeast to southwest. Before the 1964, some of the big American military facilities was returned to Japanese government. So, Yoyogi, Aoyama, Shibuya area, and Komaza, all of the Olympic Games facilities are concentrated in Southwest. And so, Olympic Games was only possible by the returning of American military base. Since 1964, the development has never stopped which we'll see in the rest of this walk and in our bonus episode in the bay. So we got to the bottom of the slope and now we're heading up. This is actually Hinokizaka, Cypress Slope, after the trees that were once here. And on our right, we've got the remainder of the park where the Mori Mansion once stood. Previously, we were in quite a quiet place This bit, which is older, is in fact where the families come to play. On the weekends, it's full of kids. But today, during the week, we've got construction going on all around. But we're continuing to climb the slope until we reach the end of this road. So we've reached the top of that slope. There will be many more hills to climb. And now we're turning left and heading down again. On the next corner, we'll curve right. We've curved right and we've reached another corner. Ahead of us, another slope goes up another hill. If we followed that, we'd find a shrine, which is tempting, but we're turning right here. On our left now is a compound with reasonably low-level, nondescript, white apartment buildings. This is American Embassy Housing. It's a huge compound. The embassy has a lot of staff because the embassy itself is not too far away. We'll see it in a minute. We're continuing down the slope with that white embassy housing on our left to the end where we're going to turn left again. So we've reached the busy road, we've got two freeways suspended overhead, traffic all around us, and we're crossing over to the forest of towers we can see on the other side, with cherry trees in bright pink exploding. And at the top of this slope, with the cherry trees, we're just pausing to look back at the two huge towers on our left. 
The one behind, the taller one, is Roppongi Grand Tower. This isn't Mori, this isn't Mitsui, this is Sumitomo Real Estate. 2016, 231 meters tall, 40 floors, with a slightly smaller 27-floor residential tower next door. This isn't a famous architect, this is designed by contractors. It's about providing space, not making quite so much of a splash. We're turning left past these towers now, with a gas station on our right, and making our way down to another busy main road, with, of course, more freeways overhead. We're waiting to cross under the freeway, this busy road again. On our left, we've got some glass towers. This is Izumi Gardens. The Sumitomo family villa used to be here. 201 meters, 45 floors, offices, apartments, hotel. The model is clear by now. We're passing under the freeway over to the other side and directly down the street ahead of us. The story of Neo-Tokyo is a story of development which both erases what was there before, but also creates possibilities for a life in the city. As we head towards our final stop, here are three takes on where Tokyo is today. First, artist Matsushita Toru on how older Tokyo can be destroyed and rebuilt. During the Olympic preparation time, developers saw huge development all over the Tokyo and Lots of local community and places we love is destructed, especially the um, park we just drove through, Miyashita Park in Shibuya. The park was built in the last Olympic. Now, for the Olympic gentrification, they destruct the park and made new park, but it's not a real park, it's a mall. <laughs> If you are in Tokyo, you really feel like everywhere is really someone's place. All places has like owners and you feel like you are watched and you know, you don't feel freedom. Lands are for everyone. <laughs> you know, in the history, like powerful people just divided it. Reconstruction is always public project and government too. We met people who are building a skate park after the building which was destructed by tsunami. So we thought it's bit very interesting because you know people doing their own reconstruction and making the DIY skate park. So we've just passed the Royal Embassy of Saudi Arabia on our right and we're walking down a brief road through a forest of towers. There are more embassies hereabouts, the Americans, the Swedish, the Spanish. The construction is ongoing, as we can hear. As we reach the end of that road, glancing to our left, we can also see another glassy tall tower. That is the Hotel Okra. There was a previous hotel there, a modernist classic built in 1962 in time for the Olympics, but it was torn down to much outrage in 2015. Now, the hotel has a 16-floor heritage wing, whatever that means, but also this 41-floor tower. And the construction which produced the Okura is ongoing. So we're turning right and passing through a construction zone. We can't go directly into the site now in front of us, but we'll follow the road as it curves round to the left. And on the corner, the beginnings of yet another tower with five huge cranes assembling it from the bottom up. Sociologist Yoshimi Shunya acknowledges the power of capitalism, but suggests the past is still visible and can be a resource. Almost one third of the population, all in, in Japan, uh, concentrate in Tokyo. And also a half of whole capital 
and the whole information and the whole company are concentrated in Tokyo. You can be very critical against Tokyo uh, because uh, Tokyo is a typical space of modernization, consumerism, and capitalism, and so on. But at the same time, uh, you can think about how these kind of overcapitalism and neoliberalism can be changed from within this city uh, if you walk around this city. And you can find uh, some kind of the different memory and different spaces and different uh, possibilities and even the many kinds of contradiction in contemporary capitalism and contemporary urbanism. As we're heading down this slope with this huge construction site to our right, ahead of us we can immediately see Tokyo Tower and beneath it a weird huge roof which looks a bit like a pyramid and indeed does have some religious significance which we'll talk about when we reach the park on the corner where we're going to end this walk. Finally, historian Jenai Hidenobu points to local initiatives which promise to draw on the past to reinvigorate the present. Japanese people are accustomed to transformation process of the townscape continuously. So there are many important activities of bottom-up cultural activity between people. For example, in Tsukishima Island, there are very nice activity of doing interview with old women to reconstruct rich image of human life. One of the archives to study and to rethink about the meaning of the past. Think for the future's Tsukishima's life and construction activity. There are many takes on Tokyo and no one gets the final word. We all agree, though, that you have to walk the streets if you're going to make a start. So we followed the road down to a little park on the corner. The construction is still ongoing on our right. It's slightly quieter, but not by much. Right ahead of us, we can see an old Amori building amidst the cranes, and then in the distance, Tokyo Tower. That was the first thing here. It's still the second tallest structure in Tokyo, though of course nobody works or lives there. It was built in 1958. It's just west of Zōjōji, the ancestral temple of the Tokugawa, complementing Kan-eji, which we visited on our walk around the commoner's city. The Tokyo Tower, of course, is more recent. It was built as a broadcasting tower. TV had started broadcasting in 1953, and the government needs to put in place the infrastructure to support the new technology. It's now the second tallest structure because, of course, there is Tokyo's sky tree. We also saw that in our walk around the commoner's city. Next was the strange pyramid we saw on the way down the road, a bizarre black shape. This is Shakaren Reiyukai, completed in 1975. It's the Tokyo base for a new religion founded back in 1919. The name translates as Spiritual Friendship Association. They have an especial focus on the Lotus Sutra as well as ancestor worship. It still claims 2.5 million members, including some overseas, but the real number is probably half that. But from where we're sitting on the bench, it's disappearing amidst all the construction. Behind us, we've got more Mori. This is an extension of Ark Hills. This was Mori's first integrated development all the way back in 1986. That is more focused on offices, hotels, a concert hall, restaurants. But then in 2012, it's joined by this low A-floor terrace and the 47-floor tower behind it, both residential. But the real story here is Azabudai Hills, this construction site that's unfolding in front of us. Apparently, the company had been incubating the idea for this since 1989, but it takes time to assemble the land, after all. And it's going to open later this year, 2023. There are three skyscrapers designed by the firm of the late César Pelli, an Argentinian architect. They include one that's already almost finished, which will now be the tallest skyscraper in Tokyo, 
325 meters, 64 floors, pushing another Mori building, Toranamon Hills, into second place. We're also seeing the construction of some low-rise, curvy shapes underneath all that. These are by Thomas Heatherwick, an English architect. The English are good at making landscape pretty, even if the capital has flowed elsewhere. According to the company's blurb, this is going to all make a modern urban village, if you can believe it, with green gardens and wellness, including fitness centres, at its core. Imagine a neighbourhood that is like a public square that brings people together every day. People are the lifeblood of a city, and that is why we chose a people-centred design to evoke the true richness of a city. That was the Moray Building Company on its promotional website for this construction site. At the moment, the only people here are workers in hard hats. Maybe this is the future of Tokyo. A temple for a religion that's been around for less than a hundred years, huddling under soaring towers with spaces for working and living and recreating. At least if you have the money to join the club. This is what it can look like, at least here in the city's near west, Shinjuku, Shibuya, Roppongi and Azabu, where political activism has turned into endless consumption, supplemented as the youth tribes have aged by the demand for a quiet, comfortable life. But Roppongi and its kin are only one small part of Tokyo. It would take another nine episodes even to walk all the way around the Yamanote line, another nine after that to begin to scratch the sprawling suburbs. Our walks through Tokyo are only one map of a city that has no end and continues to change every day. Given the sprawl, given the transformation, given over 30 million people, it's clear that there's space here for almost everything under the sun. Historicity is written and presented by Angus Lockyer and produced by Jelena Sofronievich. See the episode notes for the other walks and follow Historicity wherever you get your podcasts.